You're listening to a podcast from STI. Good afternoon. I'd like to introduce our panel today. So today we have Craig Tipple, who is an NIHR Clinical Research Fellow at Imperial College. Um, Craig is also a GUM clinician as well as working in the laboratory at the moment. We also have Gwenda Hughes, who's head of the STI surveillance section at the Health Protection Agency in Collindale, and she's an epidemiologist. Um, I'm Cathy Ison, and I'm a microbiologist, and I'm director of the Sexually Transmitted Bacteria Reference Laboratory at the Health Protection Agency in Collindale. Today we're going to talk about antibiotic resistance in bacterial sexually transmitted infections. And as you will be aware, there's been a lot of press interest recently in the problem of gonorrhea resistance. This is a global problem and of serious concern. However, what we're going to talk about today is that really um, this is a much wider problem or has the potential to be a much wider problem um, in the antibiotic treatment and prevention is really the mainstay of the public health control of bacterial STIs. There is there's no effective vaccine um, for gonorrhea, chlamydia or syphilis and is unlikely to be in the foreseeable future. So Craig has been working on antimicrobial resistance in syphilis and so Craig, maybe you could just describe what you've been doing? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so uh, we were interested to look at uh, uh, essentially macrolide resistance in Treponema pallidum, which is the bacteria that causes syphilis. This, is something, you know, this isn't the first time this has been done but by any stretch of the imagination. There have been data for some time, probably for the last 10 years, um, from the US predominantly, um, also some from, from uh, Ireland, but nowhere else in Europe, really. So we looked at samples from our clinic at St Mary's Hospital in London. We had samples that we collected between 2006 and 2008 as actually as part of a different study, but uh, they, they were amenable to this kind of analysis. So once you confirm that there's actually syphilis DNA in these samples, you can then look and see if they've got any of the mutations that can confer macrolide resistance. And that's really a point mutation in the 23S ribosomal RNA gene um, from A to G at position 2058. We had we had 18 samples in total that we looked at, and two-thirds of those carried the resistance mutation, of which 11 um, had one of the mutations and one had a 2059 mutation. And actually the only other place that that has been published and described and published was in the Czech Republic. So this is very interesting. This is the first time we've had data in the UK that show you know, any kind of evidence of macrolide resistance in T. pallidum. And it was concerning, certainly in our centre, that that, was, that represented two-thirds of our cases, especially when you look at the treatment guideline for syphilis in the UK, which includes azithromycin as one of the options. And really, I'd say that you, know, it, the, you, should, you should be extremely cautious in using that antibiotic to treat this infection, especially in the group that we were looking at, which was predominantly um, white gay men. Yes, I mean, I think it's, um, there's some concerns also about azithromycin resistance in chlamydia, although it's really not so straightforward and the, the proof is not really there, um, but which such widespread use is... is potentially has a huge risk for resistance and so you know it seems to me that eventually we might end up like looking at another surveillance program um, for antimicrobial resistance in bacteria STIs similar to the one we already run um, for gonorrhea which is the gonococcal resistance to antimicrobial surveillance program otherwise known as GRASP and which we run from the Health Protection Agency in London. However, surveillance programmes are never that easy to set up. Um, 
and um, grasp has challenges which I think would be even greater um, if we go for the other bacterial STIs. And so Gwenda, maybe you've just recently published um, about looking at representativeness of, of grasp and maybe you could think about how discuss that and really tell us whether you think this how it would work for other organisms. Yeah, I mean, when we, we looked at this for GRASP, and because um, what we were interested in finding out was when, when we were estimating um, the prevalence of resistance um, in GC and gonorrhea, um, you know, really are how good are our estimates? Because GRASP, as you know, is a, is a sentinel surveillance programme. Um, we only um, look at this once a year, uh, three, for three months every year, and, uh, and only in a selection of clinics. So it's not, it's not all clinics um, that we're looking at. And, um, and when we looked at how representative these were of the national cases, and luckily we do have... Um, quite robust data at the national level showing us how many cases we have overall and the characteristics of those cases. What we found was that we were slightly um, overestimating um, cases in London and in men who had sex with men. And when we then waited for these national cases, what we showed is that then our, our resistance estimates were slightly higher than they might have been. Fortunately, we don't think that this had any serious implications for the guidelines and the recommendations that we'd made to date. We still, we're still confident that what we've recommended to date is robust and, and correct. However, I think it does show that you, you have to be quite careful when you're, when you're looking only in a, a sort of a subset of the population for resistance that you can, well, for one thing, you could be missing resistance in areas that you're not looking um, or that you might be overestimating levels of resistance because you just happen to have tapped into a pocket where you've got high levels of resistance. And I think if we were going to be looking at, um, and I think it's a, a very nice suggestion to, to think, well, we should be, perhaps expand GRASP and look at uh, resistance in other organisms. But I think those are the things that we would need to be very careful about looking for is, you know, are the centres we're looking at, you know, are they, are they, rep- are they likely to be representative of, of all the centres and the cases that are seen across the country? I think for syphilis that's going to be a real issue because um, some work that I've been doing on, on something else showed that syphilis is really quite clustered um, in certain centres such as London and some of the big cities. And so, you know, although GRASP does take in those clinics, there will be many, many clinics and the sort of samples you get would be quite, quite a challenge, I would have thought. Yeah, indeed. I mean, really to have, you know, this... The, this, this test looking for this resistance in T. pallidum really relies on having a good DNA sample. Um, so really, you need a, someone with primary syphilis who's got an ulcer that you can swab, or you know wherever that may be. When you look at patients with secondary disease, you can find enough DNA to do the typing and resistance and resistance testing, but it is a lot more difficult, and those samples are you know much more of a challenge to process and much much less reliable. So you you know you've got to get those cases; they've got to be untreated, you know, in, uh, because the the DNA clears quite quickly. Um, so I think uh, I think it would be difficult to get those, but you know you you could foresee. You know, taking a genital swab, for example, and being able to do some testing on that, and I think that would be the the predominant sample that you would that you would be able to use for resistance testing. So, you were saying that they do this in in the west coast of the US. Yeah, indeed. Um, so, do they collect samples on consecutive patients? Do you know, or they're just genital swabs or blood samples, or they're almost exclusively uh, genital swabs. 
And certainly, so I'm, I'm referring to uh, Professor Sheila Lucard's lab um, at the University of Washington up in Seattle in the West Coast. I and mean, she certainly collects a lot of samples from the West Coast of the US, mostly from San Francisco, um, but also from King County, where Seattle lies in, in Washington State. Uh, and, and they and they they look at a lot of these genital samples, I and mean, they do also look at uh, cerebrospinal fluid as well. They look at CSF and they look at blood samples because there's uh, another researcher in that laboratory, Christina Marrow, who has, who has an interest is a neurologist and has an interest in neurosyphilis, so does a lot of typing and looks for resistance in those CSF samples and blood samples as well. So it is certainly possible from other samples, but you know the the bulk of this is from genital samples. And if you look at data published from Southern Africa, Madagascar, China, you know all of the, all of these studies are really looking at ulcer uh, uh, samples and there are a, a couple of papers that describe the robustness of data that you get from different sample types and ulcers always win over blood. Mm-hmm. And I think if we go to chlamydia, I think the challenges are even greater. I mean, the technical challenges of setting up susceptibility testing haven't been overcome yet. Um, but from a sentinel surveillance point of view, I think the biggest challenge would be representativeness then because GRASP is primarily run around GUM clinics um, and that would not necessarily be a representative sample, would it? No, I think absolutely um, that would that would be a major problem for chlamydia. We know that the, the, the diagnoses we get from GUM clinics are, are already a sort of um, su- by subset of those who are more likely to be symptomatic also higher risk. Um, we, we've got a big national chlamydia screening programme at the moment and that's where most diagnoses are made um, and these are asymptomatic patients slightly lower risk. So I think if you were wanting to look at this for chlamydia, you would need to be thinking about um, getting samples from settings beyond GUM clinics, frankly, to to try and get a better handle on what's going on. Well, with the changes in in healthcare generally, we may need to do that even for gonorrhea. Um, But having said that, the biggest challenge so far on that has been getting good demographic and behavioural data on patients who are outside GUM. I mean, we're quite spoilt in the UK with having such a a dedicated network of clinics where they have good data, even though it may not always seem that way. But I think in in comparison with many other parts of the world, we do. And I think once we move out GUM, we're going to need good systems um, at that level. Yeah, that, that's true. And in fact, um, as you say, we've got excellent data now from GUM clinics and we have very good risk factor information. We collect it from all patients um, attending all clinics. And we recently, in fact, just got um, uh, approval to extend that uh, surveillance system into all commissioned sexual health services, all community-based sexual health services. So that'll include... Um, enhanced general practitioner services that are offering uh, sexual health services there, community contraception services as well. So, and that will collect the same level of risk factor information as we currently get from GUM clinics, as well as all mm. the other uh, information on the the services those patients received and the diagnosis they had. So, the, I think that is then the opportunity that we should be taking advantage of in terms of getting better information on what's going on in patients outside of the GUM clinic setting. Yes, I mean, from our European work, we know that it's going to be a real challenge to do that across Europe. I mean, even with the the TESI system set up by European Centre for Disease Control, many um, countries just don't basically collect that data. So actually linking that to the microbiology, whichever infection we're talking about, is you know a very major challenge for the coming years. 
If we were to go back to resistance generally and, and talk a little bit about azithromycin, because I think this is a real challenge at the moment because you're, I think your figures are very frightening and our own figures are not dissimilar. Um, and we know that high-level resistance to azithromycin has already emerged in gonorrhea and we're seeing mutations in chlamydia that have been recognised in other bacteria to azithromycin. And mycoplasma genitalium, of course, resistance is well recognised there. So, I mean, do you think that um, azithromycin has any use in the future for the treatment of bacterial STIs? It's it's a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, if you look at syphilis, for example, I mean, obviously we have now nowadays, correct me if I'm wrong, but 3,000 cases a year in the UK. But, I mean, let's compare that to the 11 million new cases a year globally most of which are in the developing world. Now, to have a stat dose oral antibiotic to be able to treat that infection, which azithromycin gave us, and you know, uh, and was effective, as effective as penicillin in randomised controlled trials you know, around about 2000 and just before, you know, that gave real hope for getting rid of this infection on a global scale. But now with the resistance, with you know, you'll, you'll be defaulting back to injections of penicillin, which clearly is parenteral, has you know, sterile technique, much more expensive, much more difficult to administer on a global scale. So you know, to say I don't think there's any role for azithromycin is difficult in that in that context, especially when we have data from Madagascar, for example, that didn't show any azithromycin resistance mutations. So this, although you know, there are, there's also evidence that exposure to macrolides in three months prior to syphilis diagnosis is associated with resistance, and that you know, resistance to macrolides increased year on year. Um, say, for example, in Seattle. Then between 2000 and 2004, increased from 0 to 44%, and then up to, I think, 75% after that. So and this is something that emerges very quickly. So there may be a role for azithromycin at the moment in Africa, for example, but uh, I, th- I think we'll lose it very quickly. And I also think we'd be naive to think that it doesn't exist there on some level. Could I just ask you, Cathy, you, you mentioned there that you said you had seen you had similar data from your lab to Craig's. What, what exactly have you seen in... Well, we have samples that come in um, from across the country where we do diagnostic um, tests for Treponema pallidum and Haemophilus ducrae, um, and these are genital ulcer samples. Um, and really, just as a as a student project at this time, um, we've been uh, looking at azithromycin in those anonymised samples, um, and the levels are very similar, um, and around you know fifty sixty percent of them. They're small numbers again; they're not representative. They're you know clinics refer to us who don't have the um, facilities for dark ground or you know any sort of point of care type testing for syphilis so um, it, it's just worrying that you take a completely random sample and you can find those so that, that resistance. So that would be from all around the country different yeah. risk groups as well? Uh, well we don't have that information at the moment we, it's completely anonymised data so we don't have um, that. We, we have a study going um, where we're looking at um, molecular typing which is linked to heart surveillance but that hasn't been unblinded as yet. Yeah. I mean, it's um, if we sort of take it away from resistance itself, though, if we if gonorrhea becomes untreatable, um, and if resistance in- increases in all these different bacterial STIs, we might even have to go back to prevention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> here's an idea. Um, y- 
Yeah, I mean, I, I do think, um, well, particularly for gonorrhea, um, we're going to be having to start getting a bit more robust about our prevention messages for for mm. gonorrhea in particular, because mm. I think, um, you know, we, we are going to struggle to, to think about what, how we're going to treat this infection probably in a few years' time. And, um, you know, we... Really, the best the best thing to do is to to try and prevent people getting infected in the first place. But I mean, that's always a challenge, always has been, uh, and you and you also need to keep on. You might be effective for a, a year or two, and then then it, mm. it stops working, and you have to the political will. Yeah, exactly, and uh, so you have to keep doing it. You have to keep going at it. So it's mm. it's all it's hard work, I think. Yeah, I don't think people take it seriously. Somebody was asking me about gonorrhea resistance at a meeting recently, and I said, well, if you don't get it, then you don't need to treat it, and that would be the best way of, of yeah. avoiding resistance. And everybody laughed. And <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it's really not very funny. Mm. <laughs> um, whose responsibility is it to push the prevention messages? Is that what we're supposed to do at the Health Protection Agency? Well, I think, yes. I mean, I think we, we do have um, a role there to... Um, to be making well, to, to to be raising awareness in general, to be showing what the issues are, and and I, I think we we do do that, um, but you just have to keep at it really. And so every year we feel like we might be saying the same thing every year, and everyone's fed up listening to us. But in fact, there's always new people coming along that need to hear those messages every you know again and again. Yeah. I mean, Craig, do you think that the clinicians take this seriously enough? Or? The resistance. No, question. not the resistance. Yeah, the resistance. I or think the they do, and I've been very. Um, I've actually been very impressed with the way certainly the UK clinicians have taken that and really um, have been quite innovative in way that they're dealing with it. But you know, prevention. I'm. I don't work in the clinic. I mean, how much prevention messages get out there? Yeah, I mean, clearly, I suppose. I suppose it depends if you've got a. You know. 50 patients waiting in the waiting room or five patients waiting in the waiting room, depending on how much time and energy you have with each of those patients. I mean, certainly in my centre, you know, if you're, if you're a young if you're a young patient under 20 and at risk, you're, you're seen by a dedicated team and they, they give prevention advice to each and every one of those young people that we see um, in, in a very specialised service. And, I, you know, I, I really think that they do, they do some good work there in terms of, you know, you're over 20s and seen by, you know, in the, in the general clinic. You know, I think, yes, you know, we always try and give a bit of prevention, but I'm sure we could be doing more. Mm. Um, and again, you know, having the data to hand, knowing which groups that we should be focusing our, our intervention on, you know, who we should be referring for motivational interviewing, for example, which is something that you know, there's been a lot of training on um, at work, you know, in, t- in terms of altering, you know, risk behaviour and what have you. Um, yeah, I, was, I mean, certainly I think um, one good place to start is those who get repeatedly reinfected, um, uh, Certainly for gonorrhea, we know there are particular groups that are going to come back uh, again and again. They are the ones where you, you could make a real difference in terms of onward transmission of the infection. So, you sure. know. Well, thank you very much for the discussion today. I think we've uh, covered a number of subjects. So thank you, Craig, <laughs> and thank you, Gwenda. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Goodbye. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, go to podcasts.bmj.com. <laughs>